All right. Well, I think that's it and for as far as announcements go. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll dive into tonight's topic. Father, we thank you for tonight and this opportunity we have to fellowship together. I pray that you bless our study, that it be fruitful for our own growth, our own education in the scriptures, that it would be useful for how we walk forward, how we obey the mission, how we um, put faith in the gospel. And I pray that you would help us to stay focused on this and uh, just... Let it be glorifying to your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are on the basics. Foundation Beliefs Part 2. So you should have Part 2. So if there's any confusion, we do have the Trinity Circle again. We'll get it in a slightly different context tonight, though. So make sure that's the one you have. And uh, just to kind of re-explain what we're doing at the moment, we are writing a curriculum for everyone who comes into our church, kind of a foundation beliefs, which is basically going to follow the flow of our doctrinal statement. And so we're, y'all are my guinea pigs, and I'm writing the curriculum through this, which will allow me to go, hey, that worked, that didn't work, and we can adjust it as we create this curriculum for everybody to do. Also, it's a really good refresher for all of us to go back through the basics. Now, our beliefs are chiefly divided into two categories that we'll cover for these anyway. The first category is what we call foundational beliefs, and we just put those in the four broad categories within that section, and those are ones that basically make us Christian. So it's, it's not what makes us Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian. Or this, these are the Christian beliefs. So really anyone who carries that label should also agree with the four topics we're going over first. So last week we dealt with Trinitarian monotheism, which is a mouthful, but it just means there's how many gods? One. One, but somehow that one god is what? Three. Three persons. Not three different gods or three different things even, just three different persons within the one god. So we talked about um, that, and we talked about um, what was the, other? Oh, the, the definition of monotheism and then the definition of trinity. So tonight we are talking about the historical gospel events. So this is the bedrock. Uh, I was joking with Ted earlier, but if you're a Christian, you ought to know these things, even if you don't know necessarily the, the wording or some of the formal terms that go around it. These are the basics. And so I can say most of what we're going to say tonight with absolute confidence and uh, not to be argumentative. It's just that this topic's not really up for arguing. This is what we believe in the gospel. It's what makes us Christian. So when we talk about the historical gospel events, we are primarily talking about this fancy term, um, Advent. All right, that term, we use it here once a year. When do we usually use this term? Around, right before Christmas. So technically, Advent and Christmas aren't the same thing. Um, but Advent, it just refers to the Advent of Christ, which is a fancy way of saying his coming. That's how he came. So when we talk about the historical gospel events, we're chiefly talking about what he did when he came. So we're going to divide that into four categories. And these are technical terms, and we as Christians need to be familiar with all of these. I'll go over the four real quick, and then we're going to break down each four, each of the four and fill in these blanks. So number one, incarnation. That basically just means God becomes man. We'll get a lot more specific in the incarnation section, but that's 
the general idea. So when we say incarnation, we mean God becomes man. Can you look at the word and see the Latin root there? Anybody know? In. In is what in English? In. <laughs> All right, so we steal that preposition. All right, what about carnation or flesh? Car, car, you ever called someone carnal? All right, what's the root there? That's, that's the fleshly. So in flesh is literally what that mean, that word means. So was Jesus incarnate before he had flesh? Yes. No. No, no, he was not. So was he incarnate before he had flesh? Now, what do we call that, Jesus? Pre-incarnate, right? So before flesh. All right, second, we're going to look at atonement. And atonement can have a lot of different complicated definitions. We're going to go with this simple one. Jesus died for our sins. Uh, we ought to be able to explain that one pretty well, but we'll rehash it anyway. And then number three, resurrection. Jesus conquers the power of sin and death. And then number four, Ascension. Jesus sits at the right hand of God in heaven. Of course, this is the one that caused a lot of um, interesting conversations last week, if y'all were here for that. So fortunately, the, the main question askers aren't in the room. So we're <laughs> covering it specifically. So if they ask again next time, I'll make you answer. Okay? So we'll deal with the ascension. The idea there is Jesus left here bodily and is in heaven bodily literally sitting on a throne bodily, and from that position he is ruling. And so we'll unpack that more precisely when we get down there. So I've got here on the side an excerpt from the Nicene Creed. Have you ever heard of the Nicene Creed? You've probably at the very least quoted a version of it, which is called the Apostles' Creed. Have you heard of the Apostles' Creed? If you grew up in a Methodist church or some other denominations quote it, I think, like every service. And so essentially, these basic events around the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are all found in basically every version of the creeds of the early church. And I just wanted you all to see this. Um, this is just a one piece of the puzzle. So that's all we believe in one God, Father Almighty, and then we believe in... One Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father, before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, was made human. He was crucified <clears throat> Sorry, for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So you see all four of the things we're going to discuss tonight are in that creed. The only reason I throw the creed at you is this is not new in any sense. This is what the church has been teaching from day one. This is literally bedrock foundation Christian gospel. And uh, that creed, there's, there's even several versions of the creed, and you'll find over years all they do is get more precise in some of the lingo. But all of these content, all the main elements are, are there from the very early days. In fact, the Apostles' Creed, the version we have of it is, is fairly modern, but we have remnants and pieces of the Apostles' Creed literally from the first century, which, if that tells you something, the New Testament was written 
during the first century. So that is a very old um, document. So just saying, again, it's one of those things where uh, no room for disagreement here on this topic. This is foundation. All right, so let's talk about the incarnation. Jesus has always been God. Jesus has always been God. That's the key. So before Jesus was incarnate, was he God? Yes, absolutely. So let's look at the most famous passage about that. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And we'll literally just look at verse 1. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now the Word is John's Word for what? It's a reference to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. So what does that make you assume? If the Word was right there with God. He's he's a person. He's he's a different person because he's in relationship to the Father. He can be with the Father. So he's there with God. The Word was God. In fact, we find the basic bare bones of the Trinity in that very statement is that Jesus both is God and yet is with God. And when is this statement true? Well, I mean, it's always true, but specifically in the passage, when are they trying to show you that it was true? In the beginning, this was already true. So how long has Jesus been God? As long as God has been God, Jesus has been God. How long has God been God? That's the point, right? He is infinite. When we called him last week the infinite, I mean, sorry, the absolute being, that's what we mean. By definition, God is the absolute being. Jesus is that God. So Jesus has always been God. Now, here's the the next part is where we get into the basics of Christology, which is the study of Christ. Jesus became truly human, truly human. So to be truly human, um, what would something have to be? Is a dog truly human? Or is a plant truly human? Okay, well, what makes a human a human? Okay. Well, it, it's, it's several things, right? He's, for one, it's got to be this particular flesh. So Paul would distinguish between, say, the flesh of a bird and the flesh of a human. We might, in modern terms, talk about... DNA or something like that, but it's a it's a different thing. And if somebody said soul, biblically I would say soul and spirit are basically the same. I, I think different ideas for the same concept. So human is both body and soul made in the image of God, right? It's a it's a created thing. So is the humanness of Jesus created? Yes, yes, because yes. he's truly human. Right? Does it have a physical body? Does Jesus' humanity have a soul? Yes, absolutely. It's own soul. So let's real quick, let's look at our Trinity thing. So we put the Father up top. We put the Son over here. We put the Holy Spirit here. All right, so who can quickly tell me the difference between the members of the Trinity? Father begat Son and uh, Holy Spirit. Okay. The one we can say one more thing. The Spirit, Spirit. proceeds. Father Spirit, the Son Spirit. And the Son Spirit, yeah. And the so Holy Spirit is spirited. 
Yeah, there you go. There you go. I did figure out the binary thing after last week, by the way. But I'm so nervous to do it again that I might still mess it up. So I'm just going to pretend that illustration never happened. Um, so the question we asked when we're talking about the Trinity, so we said, how many gods are here? One. One. Said, so technically, we've already committed heresy by drawing the circle, right? Furthermore, we've committed heresy by putting the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Father in different sections of the circle. Because what part of God is in this circle, in this part of the circle? All of God is here, and all of God is here, and all of God is anywhere in the circle. So we're working within some limitations. But the question we ask is what's something that's true about the Father in his being, not just in what he's done, but in who he is, that's not true about the Son or not true about the Holy Spirit? And the answer was very simple. There's not much different. Which one is all-powerful? All of them. Which one is omnipresent and omniscient, infinite, eternal? And not just that they're all these things, they're all the same these things. So if there's a part of God that's eternal, it's only that one thing, and the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son are that one thing. And if there's a part of him, and there's not a part, because really his eternality and his power are the same thing. His love is the same thing. Because how many things has God made of? Remember, just, just one. So the only thing true, different between them is that the Father begets the Son. And that the Father gives forth, spirates is the word we use, the Holy Spirit. And the Son also spirates the Holy Spirit. So the Father sins twice. The Son is sent and sins. And the Holy Spirit is sent twice. That's the Trinity. That's the whole thing. And so Jesus is that before he becomes man. But then, 2,000 years ago, because this happened in time. Can we say God exists in time in the way that we do? No, it's different, right? That's why he's not predicting the future when he prophesies. He's just telling us the future, right? But something did happen in time. And that's why we put the... The little lump on the, so this is, we'll just say this is Godhead. Have you ever heard that term? Godhead is usually referred, when you're specifically trying to include all three members of the Trinity at the same time, people usually say Godhead. So the Godhead did not change when Jesus became a man. What happened? We took humanity and we attached it, I said we, no, we did not. God, God attached humanity to himself. You with me so far? This is what we mean when we say Jesus became a human being. Are you with me? This is the basics. So, so Jesus became truly human, human, having both a divine nature and a human nature. So Jesus has... How much of Jesus is God? All of Jesus is God, yet he's also over here got another nature, and this nature is not divine, right? So can you kill this body? Well, you could, right? He's he's changed it now. A change we'll get to have later, right? Does it bleed? Does it have blood? Does it go to the bathroom? Yeah, you know, all these things are true of this body, and so that's why... Jesus can die on the cross, but can God die? 
No. But the humanity of Jesus can. So if we were going to put another illustration, we could say this is Jesus. He's truly God, so everything that's true about this circle is true about one of his natures. Everything that's true about the human circle is true of that nature. But how many Jesuses are there? One. One. Have you ever heard the fancy term, I didn't put it on there, hypostatic union? That's a fancy doctrine that says there's only one Jesus, one person Jesus, but somehow that one person Jesus has two different natures. Is the man Jesus omnipresent? No. But is Jesus omnipresent? Yeah. See how that works? I can say things about Jesus that, technically speaking, are only true of one nature or the other. Does Jesus know everything? Yes. Does Jesus know when he's coming back? No. But he does. And he doesn't. Well, why can I say he doesn't? Because the man is not omniscient. But the God is. So here's the doctrine in a nutshell. The Godness in Jesus and the man in Jesus are not mixed or mingled in any sense. They remain two different things completely. Yet, we cannot separate them outside of the one Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. So where are we out in the blanks? All right, so Jesus' divine and human natures are not mingled in any way, but he is only one person. That's the doctrine of Jesus right there. So they're not mingled. So the divinity and the manness are not the same, but there's only one Jesus. So on my piece of paper, because I was using Microsoft Word, there's that little overlap there. That's heresy. Okay? So if I can erase that ink... I would, but I couldn't make my program do it, so I'll need somebody like Rob to go in there and do it right. Um, Because that would make Jesus three things. Because he'd be God and man, and then he'd also be this hybrid thing that was an overlap of the two. He's not a hybrid. He's just God completely, and he's man completely, and every full sense of the term, but they don't get mixed at all. But he's only one person. Just as complicated as Trinity side is the Jesus side. But that's what the incarnation is. So, yeah. So, um, I assume since the Nicene Creed is on here that, like, this is like a Protestant belief. Do Protestant denominations disagree on the nature of Jesus? Not that call themselves Christian. Okay. So, basically, every what we would call heresy or cult Mm -hmm. ever. Is some version of the Trinity isn't true or Jesus isn't God or isn't man. It's always those two pieces of doctrine that get messed up every single time. And so at Nicene Creed, we're talking pre-Orthodox, pre-Roman Catholic, pre-Protestant. This is us agreeing on this before there were divisions. So there's no groups yet outside of Christian and heretic. Those are the only two categories at that time in world history. So people who disagree on this one would rightly be called non-Christian. This, this is that foundation. 
that level. So Mormonism breaks this. Jehovah's Witnesses break this. Actually, some flavors of Pentecostalism break this. Um, I, in fact, I had a Pentecostal student in a class one time in a private Christian school that was strictly evangelical Trinitarian, and she was a modalist of the strict Pentecostal type. And I, I walked through the gospel one time explaining how Jesus took the wrath of God, all this stuff. And she said, we must not believe that because that doesn't fit our understanding of God. And I said, you're, you're right. <laughs> yeah, y'all don't. You can't believe the gospel without this framework. And that's why it's been foundational from the beginning. So, so yeah, there's no really disagreement here. Or, or it's not permitted, we should say. It's not up for debate. <laughs> it's not up for debate, yeah. We'll get into debate starting week five. There's debate there. But uh, up until that point... There's no room. So now there's debate about some of the particulars of how this works, but not whether or not it is. Does that make sense? Okay. I have a question. Yeah. If it's not a good question for Mountain Big Rabbit, but yeah. So Jesus was fully God and then fully man when he was on earth. Mm-hmm. So he he knew everything that was going to happen in the future. In a certain sense, yes. But that's why we have the tension. Because there's a certain sense in which he doesn't know. But he does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that feeling you have right now, we, we feel that a lot. <laughs> We're reading through the New Testament. It's like, oh, there's a tension there. But you can see the tension. Right, let's just look at it. Look, go to Hebrews. Um, Hebrews is such an interesting book because it never explains the doctrine of Christ, but it operates with it. Um, from beginning to end. And so, let's just, we'll just start in the first chapter, verse 1, um, and see how Hebrews is doing its Christology. So long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So, just according to that passage, how long has Jesus been around? At least since before the creation of time, right? So he's been here through that whole time. Verse 3, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Who's doing that? That's Jesus. So the universe is upheld, literally, every moment of every day by the power of Christ. So was that true before he came? Yeah, that's been true since before it started. This is that Jesus. But then, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So when did he become greater than angels? According to that verse. After the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Well, how's that possible? That in the same paragraph, he's the eternal God who's always existed, but he's inherited a name that's greater than angels. He's been given a glory that is greater than something he had before. But that's only true of this. It's not true of that. Because how often does God change? Never. But there's lots of changes here. The New Testament tells us. I mean, he grew in wisdom and stature. How, how can the God of the universe grow in wisdom? The 
flesh can. The human part of Jesus can. Um, so you, if you think about that as you read Hebrews, you'll see all of this lingo about Jesus being lower than angels and then higher than angels. Well, you can't make the divinity lower than angels. That's by definition impossible. But the humanity can, and it does. And technically, the incarnation is part of the doctrine of the humiliation of Christ. Because there's a humbling in becoming human. And uh, he, he gains humanity. That, that, that's just one. You could read all of Hebrews and see that. All right. Does that answer the question at all? Can I ask one more question? Please, yeah. Go ahead. Yes. Does that mean the humanity of Jesus doesn't know, but the divinity actually does? Yeah, the divinity does. All right, so we'll think about, there's a lot of awkward, okay, let's do it like this. Let's look at God. He's only one God. He only has one will. Not a will for the Father, a will for the Son, and a will for the Holy Spirit. Because they're not made of different, like, there's only one will. There's only one set of knowledge. And it's the same. But then Jesus in the garden says, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Well, how can he have a separate will than the Father if he's God? But because he's a man. We see the tension between the two natures of Christ all throughout the New Testament. And it's a, it is a tension. I mean, when we really press the question, well, how can he know and not know? Well, he, I, I'm not God and human at the same time. I don't know what that's like. Um, I don't think any of us do. But that's, the t- that's exactly where the tension is, is there's things, by definition, the man part of Jesus is not God. That's what it means to be man, right? It's to be creature. And so it experiences things that this side doesn't. So, like, doctrinally, when Jesus suffered on the cross, technically, God didn't suffer on the cross. Not technically, because God can't suffer anything. But Jesus, the man, can. And he suffers the full weight of God's wrath in our place. Does that make sense? Well, that was quite the right question. Do you feel like you're hearing the doctrine? <laughs> Making sense is a different category. So, But this is the doctrine of Christ. That answer your question at all? Okay. Satisfactorily? <laughs> okay. Where are we at? Did we finish all those blanks? Okay. To atonement. Right. You know the first blank. Jesus died for our yeah. sins. That's part of the gospel proclamation, 1 Corinthians 15.3, oldest written portion of the New Testament. Um, it says that I delivered to you as of first importance what also was delivered to me, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And it moves forward to the resurrection. But that is literally the first statement and the very first doctrinal statement the Christian church ever produced. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That is the bedrock. So let's talk about what that means. So Jesus died as our, begins with a P. Propitiation. Propitiation. Excellent. Propitiation. All right, now that one we have said enough times that I'm hoping most of you could probably define it for me. So I'm going to 
quiz you. I'm going to give me a definition of propitiation. Payment. I think the word you're looking for is vicarious. Transfer imputation? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, all the big fancy doctrinal terms. Um, <laughs> yeah, all of those, yeah. Um, okay. So here's the idea. God has a cup full of wrath. And why does God have a cup full of wrath? We're saying this is a response to our sin. God takes that cup of wrath, pours it out on Jesus on the cross. That's why he says, let this cup pass from me. But then when he gets finished drinking the cup symbolically, what does Jesus say from the cross? It is finished. All right, now be clear. That does not mean Jesus is done. It means the cup is finished. This piece of the puzzle is finished. Jesus has taken all of God's wrath for us on his behalf. I mean, oh, sorry, on our behalf. Um, so we call that propitiation. It's second important to know that Jesus' death, death is substitutionary. It's a really big fancy word. There's a shorter word, but people are probably more likely to know that one. But it's vicarious. And if you want to know what vicarious means, it means substitutionary. <laughs> All right. That word's actually making a comeback, though, vicarious. Usually the... Um, how do we use that word modern day? Vicarious. To live through someone else. That's our usual way for doing that. That's the idea. So... In old days, we would have said Jesus' death was vicarious, but the word dropped out of usage, so we started saying substitutionary. Point being, you were supposed to be on the cross, but instead of you going to the cross, your sin goes to the cross. Beautiful passage for that is Colossians 2.14, and that Jesus took the certificate of debt against me, my record of sin, and he nailed that to a tree. A cross. That's why when we read in the book of Revelation, there's volumes of books that contain all the sins everyone ever did, except not everybody's sins are in that book. Because some people's sins are where? They got nailed to a cross. And so that's what atonement means. And it's substitutionary because it's specific. It's for people. Right? Y'all follow me on that? And we get a this, this debate then about how that works out, but, but that's the basic idea. And then number four, Jesus' atonement is complete and final. And let's look at the Hebrews passage there, Hebrews 9, 12. Well, let's start in verse 11, actually. So he says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, or tabernacle. So what's the greater or more perfect tabernacle? Any guesses? It's not the one that's on earth. It's the one that's in heaven. Okay? Jesus has an actual tabernacle in heaven, and he's entered that tabernacle. It's not made by hands. That is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing what kind of redemption? Eternal redemption. Well, why does Jesus have to do it just the one time? Because of the quality of the sacrifice. So because of that, he's finished. Because how many times did he have to do it? Once. And do we need to do anything else afterwards? No. So it is both complete and final. This is a basic concept to Hebrews. So it is complete and final. All right, so, so far that all should have been pretty, pretty basic. Now, some of the incarnation stuff is complicated, but the, you heard that growing up as a kid, though. Jesus is fully God and fully man. So if you were in church at all, you've been exposed to that. All right, so now, resurrection. So side note, we're going to deal with resurrection as its own category as um, section number four. But we're mostly going to be talking about our resurrection in that fourth category. This time we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, in the Bible, if you see the statement, the resurrection, it's usually not talking about Jesus. It's usually talking about what we will do at the end. Every early creed contains that resurrection. And I will, I'm sorry, I'm starting to preach the fourth one. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. <laughs> right now, let's deal with the one Jesus did. All right, so Jesus rose from the dead house. Any guesses? My key word there? Bodily. Bodily. Physically. So 1 Corinthians 15, of course, that's the whole chapter is about that question. Um, we won't study that tonight. But uh, if you think about it, what do we celebrate on Easter? The tomb is empty. So it's literally the body of Jesus that had died. It's that body that comes back to life. So that body was raised from the dead. Now let's go to Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 4. else hot in here? Can I turn it on or is that going to annoy everybody? I'm dying. I'm sorry. It's just like... I guess once I got here late, I didn't Romans chapter 6, we'll pick up in verse 7. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So just to remind ourselves, we've already defined a human 
as possessing what two key parts? Body, soul. All right, what is your default problem? You come into this world, is there any way your body is broken by default? Yeah, yeah, so what is, I'll just say broken. That's, that's a good enough term. It's not what it's supposed to be, right? Your body is literally, this is why we get old, this is why we have disease, this is why we eventually die. Right? And then by default, what is wrong with your soul? What would we call that biblical terms? Dead. It's dead. Ephesians. Ephesians 2.1. You are dead in trespasses and sins. So then you get saved. And this is where the resurrection comes in. What's the resurrection do to your body right now? Nothing. So that comes down. Carries. Does the resurrection do anything to your soul immediately? Raises it up, made alive. Very interesting side note there. What's the definition of something that's been resurrected to the glorious state compared to just resuscitated back to life? What's the difference between the two? Whether or not you can die again later, right? So Lazarus didn't get resurrected in that sense. He got advanced resuscitation, right? If you get resurrected in the correct, in the glorified sense, then Lazarus would still be walking around today, right? Now, which kind of resurrection is your spirit being made alive with? The Jesus raised from the dead kind, right? So by definition, just our definition of resurrection, can that soul die again once it's been made alive by the resurrection power of Christ? No. In fact... Your soul is as raised from the dead as it will ever be. Isn't that fascinating to think about? Now, because of that, there's some tension, because part of you is raised from the dead. Part of you is not. So we have a tension built in. So let's go furthermore. Actually, let's, let's go ahead and get nerdy. Let's make it two more seconds. That for y'all. So then I die, but Jesus hadn't come back yet. What's happened to my body? Now it's dead. And where do I put that body? Dead in, I'm going to say ground. Sorry, grave. Old Testament word is shield. But where's your spirit, your soul? In heaven. Okay, and then after that, in the end, I'm going to say eternity here. What happens to the body? Resurrected. And then the soul then is back in the body. Okay? So that's what we're getting at when we say Jesus' resurrection defeats the power of sin and death. The power of sin... Starts getting defeated right there. Is that now or is that later? Yeah. Right now. As soon as you're a believer, the power of sin is being dealt with now. But you still have a flesh. In fact, if you think about it, how often does the Bible refer to that part of you from the physical perspective? It's the fleshly side. Now, we recognize there's overlap. And where do you draw the line between the two? That's a difficult question to answer. 
Um, but this is where Jesus starts doing battle with sin, right here. And then right there, death itself will be defeated. That's what Jesus is doing theologically in the resurrection. So he defeats the power of sin and death. That's the blanks if I didn't understand that. So Jesus defeats the power of sin and death. And number three, the resurrection declares Christ to be the divine son of God. That's one of the main points of the resurrection. So people say, well, Jesus didn't directly claim to be God. Well, technically he did in the resurrection. That's exactly what he's doing. It is declaring that he is God. How many other people can raise themselves from the dead? It doesn't work that way. He can. He is God. Romans 1.4 says that explicitly. We're getting close to the end, so let's keep going. All right, number four, the ascension. So we've done incarnation, he came down the flesh, then he died, now he's raised, and now he's going to ascend. So if you think about it, we kind of have two steps down, followed by two steps back up. Does that make sense? So we got heaven up here. So Jesus incarnates. So he's coming down to earth. Then Jesus dies suffers. Then he then he raises and then he ascends. So where is he going to end up? Right hand of the Father. Right? That's the idea. This is the loop. We call this side in doctrine, if you, if you care about the fancy terms, we call this side the humiliation of Christ and this side is called the exaltation of Christ. He comes down, and he comes back up. Now, before we read those passages, let me want to show you just the general overview in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. So this is right before he's going to talk about spiritual gifts. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts, uh, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So Paul has to explain this because it doesn't seem to make sense because he's misquoting scripture. Um, so he says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also had descended into, into the lower regions, the earth? Did Jesus descend in any sense? He did, yes. He came down to the earth from heaven. And then if he's done that, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then it's from that position that he gives out the spiritual gifts. But this is just the biblical concept, that Jesus came down from heaven, and then when he was finished with his work, he went back to heaven. If you think about that lingo, you'll see it all over John's gospel. John's gospel is filled with it. I came down from heaven to do my Father's will, and then the closer we get to the end, the more he talks about going back to heaven to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. So that is our biblical paradigm. All right, so let's fill in these last few blanks. Jesus left the earth in his resurrected body. So if you think about that, uh, the passage is there, Acts chapter 1, 9, and 10. Jesus had just given them that commission that you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
And then while he's talking to them, what does he do? Bodily raises up into the sky and disappears in the clouds. And then you know, a few more feet higher and he reached heaven. Okay, not exactly, but he's leaving. The point is bodily. So he is in a human body right now. So is Jesus human? Yes. Is he God? Are they mixed? No. Right. But he's only one person. Very good. Y'all got it. One person, God and man, but not mixed, Jesus Christ. All right, so Jesus now sits exalted to his new and old positions of glory. New and old positions of glory. So I've listed several scriptures here. Um, in all of these scriptures, you have the idea that Jesus has been given a name that is above every name. You're, you're familiar with the lingo. And we already looked at it in Hebrews. So in what way can Jesus have a new position? How is that possible for Jesus to have a new position in heaven that he did not have before? Because he's a man now. The man, Jesus Christ, had never sat at the right hand of the Father. Does that make sense? Well, do you follow what I'm saying? I should be careful here. The man, Jesus Christ, is sitting in a new position. But... Is Jesus sitting in a new position? No. He's been in this position for all of eternity. will always be in this position. He's never not been sitting in this position. Jesus Christ the God does not change. Interesting that the Bible doesn't say in Hebrews that the Father is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Who's it saying? It's Jesus. It's like Hebrews is emphasizing. You know, all this incarnation stuff happened, yes. But Jesus has actually never changed. But the humanity of Jesus has been exalted. And now from that position, Jesus rules the universe right now. Let's just look at uh, the several good passages to say that. Actually, let's do the Hebrews one. That's, that's probably the best one. Hebrews 2.8. Under his feet. So in the Old Testament, this passage is just talking about humanity. Because how much of creation is subject to humans? Think about the garden. What were they supposed to do? Subdue it, to have dominion over the earth. This is a reference to that. And the New Testament, remember everything in the Old Testament in some way or another points to Christ. And this is how we see that in that passage, because Jesus is going to fulfill even a prophecy about humanity, but he's going to fulfill a prophecy about humanity in the fullest sense possible, right? Because he's, he's the perfect human, 
So this is how Hebrews works it out. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What's he getting at? How much of the universe is under the control of Jesus Christ? All of it. But how much of the universe is bowing the knee and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord? Very little of it. But what does Philippians 2.11 tell us? Eventually, every knee and every tongue will do. They will literally bow and literally confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The discrepancy there is not with whether or not he's Lord. It's in whether or not it's acknowledged. And so that day is coming. Jesus rules the universe from his throne at this very moment, right now. So, all right, any questions on the historical gospel events? So content? Last time I thought we were going to get done early, and then we had 30 minutes of questions. So how are we hanging tonight? Is this working? I'll call Tim. Oh, he attended a lot of them. He sure did. <laughs> they were good questions, though. They were, they were very good questions. He usually does have good ones. Okay. Well, this was great. Any prayer requests for this evening?